Chapter forty seven of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter forty seven The Dean Elect. During the entire next week, Barchester was ignorant who was to be its new dean. On Sunday morning, Mr. Slope was decidedly the favourite but he did not show himself in the cathedral and then he sank a point or two in the betting on monday he got a scolding from the bishop in the hearing of the servants and down he went till nobody would have him at any price but on tuesday he received a letter in an official cover marked private by which he fully recovered his place in the public favour on wednesday he was said to be ill and that did not look well but on thursday morning he went down to the railway station with a very jaunty air and when it was ascertained that he had taken a first-class ticket for london there was no longer any room for doubt on the matter while matters were in this state of ferment at barchester there was not much mental comfort at plumstead our friend the archdeacon had many grounds for inward grief he was much displeased at the result of dr gwynne's diplomatic mission to the palace and did not even scruple to say to his wife that had he gone himself he would have managed the affair much better his wife did not agree with him but that did not mend the matter mr quiverful's appointment to the hospital was however a fait accompli and mr harding's acquiescence in that appointment was not less so nothing would induce mr harding to make a public appeal against the bishop and the master of lazarus quite approved of his not doing so i don't know what has come to the master said the archdeacon over and over again he used to be ready enough to stand up for his order my dear archdeacon mrs grantly would say in reply what is the use of always fighting i really think the master is right the master however had taken steps of his own of which neither the archdeacon nor his wife knew anything then mr slope's successes were henbane to dr grantly and mrs bold's improprieties were as bad what would be all the world to archdeacon grantly if mr slope should become dean of barchester and marry his wife's sister he talked of it and talked of it till he was nearly ill mrs grantly almost wished that the marriage were done and over so that she might hear no more about it and there was yet another ground of misery which cut him to the quick nearly as closely as either of the others that paragon of a clergyman whom he had bestowed upon st ewold's that college friend of whom he had boasted so loudly that ecclesiastical knight before whose lance mr slope was to fall and bite the dust 
that worthy bulwark of the church as it should be that honoured representative of oxford's best spirit was so at least his wife had told him half a dozen times misconducting himself nothing had been seen of mr arabin at plumstead for the last week but a good deal had unfortunately been heard of him as soon as mrs grantly had found herself alone with the archdeacon on the evening of the ullathorne party she had expressed herself very forcibly as to mr arabin's conduct on that occasion he had she declared looked and acted and talked very unlike a decent parish clergyman at first the archdeacon had laughed at this and assured her that she need not trouble herself that mr arabin would be found to be quite safe but by degrees he began to find that his wife's eyes had been sharper than his own other people coupled the signora's name with that of mr arabin the meagre little prebendary who lived in the close told him to a nicety how often mr arabin had visited at dr stanhope's and how long he had remained on the occasion of each visit he had asked after mr arabin at the cathedral library and an officious little vicar choral had offered to go and see whether he could be found at dr stanhope's rumour when she has contrived to sound the first note on her trumpet soon makes a loud peal audible enough it was too clear that mr arabin had succumbed to the italian woman and that the archdeacon's credit would suffer fearfully if something were not done to rescue the brand from the burning besides to give the archdeacon his due he was really attached to mr arabin and grieved greatly at his backsliding they were sitting talking over their sorrows in the drawing-room before dinner on the day after mr slope's departure for london and on this occasion mrs grantly spoke out her mind freely she had opinions of her own about parish clergymen and now thought it right to give vent to them if you would have been led by me archdeacon you would never have put a bachelor into st ewold's but my dear you don't mean to say that all bachelor clergymen misbehave themselves i don't know that clergymen are so much better than other men said mrs grantly it's all very well with a curate whom you have under your own eye and whom you can get rid of if he persists in improprieties but mr arabin was a fellow and couldn't have had a wife then i would have found someone who could but my dear are fellows never to get livings yes to be sure they are when they get engaged i never would put a young man into a living unless he were married or engaged to be married now here is mr arabin the whole responsibility lies upon you there is not at this moment a clergyman in all oxford more respected for morals and conduct than arabin oh oxford said the lady with a sneer 
what men choose to do at oxford nobody ever hears of a man may do very well at oxford who would bring disgrace on a parish and to tell you the truth it seems to me that mr arabin is just such a man the archdeacon groaned deeply but he had no further answer to make you really must speak to him archdeacon only think what the thorns will say if they hear that their parish clergyman spends his whole time philandering with this woman the archdeacon groaned again he was a courageous man and knew well enough how to rebuke the younger clergyman of the diocese when necessary but there was that about mr arabin which made the doctor feel that it would be very difficult to rebuke him with good effect you can advise him to find a wife for himself and he will understand well enough what that means said mrs grantly the archdeacon had nothing for it but groaning there was mr slope he was going to be made dean he was going to take a wife he was about to achieve respectability and wealth an excellent family mansion and a family carriage he would soon be among the comfortable elite of the ecclesiastical world of barchester whereas his own protege the true scion of the true church by whom he had sworn would be still but a poor vicar and that with a very indifferent character for moral conduct it might be all very well recommending mr arabin to marry but how would mr arabin when married support a wife things were ordering themselves thus in plumstead drawing-room when dr and mrs grantly were disturbed in their sweet discourse by the quick rattle of a carriage and pair of horses on the gravel sweep the sound was not that of visitors whose private carriages are generally brought up to country-house doors with demure propriety but betokened rather the advent of some person or persons who were in a hurry to reach the house and had no intention of immediately leaving it guests invited to stay a week and who were conscious of arriving after the first dinner-bell would probably approach in such a manner so might arrive an attorney with the news of a granduncle's death or a son from college with all the fresh honours of a double first no one would have had himself driven up to the door of a country house in such a manner who had the slightest doubt of his own right to force an entry who is it said mrs grantly looking at her husband who on earth can it be said the archdeacon to his wife he then quietly got up and stood with the drawing-room door open in his hand why it's your father it was indeed mr harding and mr harding alone he had come by himself in a post-chaise with a couple of horses from barchester arriving almost after dark and evidently full of news his visits had usually been made in the quietest manner 
he had rarely presumed to come without notice and had always been driven up in a modest old green fly with one horse that hardly made itself heard as it crawled up to the hall door good gracious warden is it you said the archdeacon forgetting in his surprise the events of the last few years but come in nothing the matter i hope we are very glad you are come papa said his daughter i'll go and get your room ready at once i ain't warden archdeacon said mr harding mr quiverful is warden oh i know i know said the archdeacon petulantly i forgot all about it at the moment is anything the matter don't go this moment susan said mr harding i have something to tell you the dinner-bell will ring in five minutes said she will it said mr harding then perhaps i had better wait he was big with news which he had come to tell but which he knew could not be told without much discussion he had hurried away to plumstead as fast as two horses could bring him and now finding himself there he was willing to accept the reprieve which dinner would give him if you have anything of moment to tell us said the archdeacon pray let us hear it at once has eleanor gone off no she has not said mr harding with a look of great displeasure has slope been made dean no he has not but but what said the archdeacon who was becoming very impatient they have they have what said the archdeacon they have offered it to me said mr harding with a modesty which almost prevented his speaking good heavens said the archdeacon and sunk back exhausted in an easy chair my dear dear father said mrs grantly and threw her arms round her father's neck so i thought i had better come out and consult with you at once said mr harding consult shouted the archdeacon but my dear harding i congratulate you with my whole heart with my whole heart i do indeed i never heard anything in my life that gave me so much pleasure and he got hold of both his father-in-law's hands and shook them as though he were going to shake them off and walked round and round the room twirling a copy of the jupiter over his head to show his extreme exultation but began mr harding but me no buts said the archdeacon i never was so happy in my life it was just the proper thing to do upon my honour i'll never say another word against lord dash the longest day i have to live that's dr gwynne's doing you may be sure said mrs grantly who greatly liked the master of lazarus he being an orderly married man with a large family i suppose it is said the archdeacon oh 
papa i am so truly delighted said mrs grantly getting up and kissing her father but my dear said mr harding it was all in vain that he strove to speak nobody would listen to him well mr dean said the archdeacon triumphing the deanery gardens will be some consolation for the hospital elms well poor quiverful i won't begrudge him his good fortune any longer no indeed said mrs grantly poor woman she has fourteen children i am sure i am very glad they have got it so am i said mr harding i would give twenty pounds said the archdeacon to see how mr slope will look when he hears it the idea of mr slope's discomfiture formed no small part of the archdeacon's pleasure at last mr harding was allowed to go upstairs and wash his hands having in fact said very little of all that he had come out to plumstead on purpose to say nor could anything more be said till the servants were gone after dinner the joy of dr grantly was so uncontrollable that he could not refrain from calling his father-in-law mr dean before the men and therefore it was soon matter of discussion in the lower regions how mr harding instead of his daughter's future husband was to be the new dean and various were the opinions on the matter the cook and butler who were advanced in years thought that it was just as it should be but the footman and lady's maid who were younger thought it was a great shame that mr slope should lose his chance he's a mean chap all the same said the footman and it an't along of him that i says so but i always did admire the missus's sister and she'd well become the situation while these were the ideas downstairs a very great difference of opinion existed above as soon as the cloth was drawn and the wine on the table mr harding made for himself an opportunity of speaking it was however with much inward troubling that he said it's very kind of lord dash very kind and i feel it deeply most deeply i am i must confess gratified by the offer i should think so said the archdeacon but all the same i am afraid that i can't accept it the decanter almost fell from the archdeacon's hand upon the table and the start he made was so great as to make his wife jump up from her chair not accept the deanship if it really ended in this there would be no longer any doubt that his father-in-law was demented the question now was whether a clergyman with low rank and preferment amounting to less than two hundred pounds a year should accept high rank twelve hundred pounds a year and one of the most desirable positions which his profession had to afford what said the archdeacon gasping for breath and staring at his guest as though the violence of his emotion had almost thrown him into a fit what i do not find myself fit for new duties urged mr harding new duties 
what duties said the archdeacon with unintended sarcasm oh papa said mrs grantly nothing can be easier than what a dean has to do surely you are more active than dr trefoil he won't have half as much to do as he has at present said dr grantly did you see what the jupiter said the other day about young men yes and i saw that the jupiter said all that it could to induce the appointment of mr slope perhaps you would wish to see mr slope made dean mr harding made no reply to this rebuke though he felt it strongly he had not come over to plumstead to have further contention with his son-in-law about mr slope so he allowed it to pass by i know i cannot make you understand my feeling he said for we have been cast in different moulds i may wish that i had your spirit and energy and power of combating but i have not every day that is added to my life increases my wish for peace and rest and where on earth can a man have peace and rest if not in a deanery said the archdeacon people will say that i am too old for it good heavens people what people what need you care for any people but i think myself i am too old for any new place dear papa said mrs grantly men ten years older than you are appointed to new situations day after day my dear said he it is impossible that i should make you understand my feelings nor do i pretend to any great virtue in the matter the truth is i want the force of character which might enable me to stand against the spirit of the times the call on all sides now is for young men and i have not the nerve to put myself in opposition to the demand were the jupiter when it hears of my appointment to write article after article setting forth my incompetency i am sure it would cost me my reason i ought to be able to bear with such things you will say well my dear i own that i ought but i feel my weakness and i know that i can't and to tell you the truth i know no more than a child what the dean has to do Pshaw! exclaimed the archdeacon don't be angry with me archdeacon don't let us quarrel about it susan if you knew how keenly i feel the necessity of having to disoblige you in this matter you would not be angry with me this was a dreadful blow to dr grantly nothing could possibly have suited him better than having mr harding in the deanery though he had never looked down on mr harding on account of his recent poverty he did fully recognise the satisfaction of having those belonging to him in comfortable positions 
it would be much more suitable that mr harding should be dean of barchester than vicar of st cuthbert's and precentor to boot and then the great discomfiture of that arch-enemy of all that was respectable in barchester of that new low-church clerical parvenu that had fallen amongst them that alone would be worth more almost than the situation itself it was frightful to think that such unhoped-for good fortune should be marred by the absurd crotchets and unwholesome hallucinations by which mr harding allowed himself to be led astray to have the cup so near his lips and then to lose the drinking of it was more than dr grantly could endure and yet it appeared as though he would have to endure it in vain he threatened and in vain he coaxed mr harding did not indeed speak with perfect decision of refusing the proffered glory but he would not speak with anything like decision of accepting it when pressed again and again he would again and again allege that he was wholly unfitted to new duties it was in vain that the archdeacon tried to insinuate though he could not plainly declare that there were no new duties to perform it was in vain he hinted that in all cases of difficulty he he the archdeacon was willing and able to guide a weak-minded dean mr harding seemed to have a foolish idea not only that there were new duties to do but that no one should accept the place who was not himself prepared to do them the conference ended in an understanding that mr harding should at once acknowledge the letter he had received from the minister's private secretary and should beg that he might be allowed two days to make up his mind and that during those two days the matter should be considered on the following morning the archdeacon was to drive mr harding back to barchester End of chapter 47 Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom Chapter 48 of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom Chapter 48 Miss Thorne Shows Her Talent at Matchmaking on mr harding's return to barchester from plumstead which was effected by him in due course in company with the archdeacon more tidings of a surprising nature met him he was during the journey subjected to such a weight of unanswerable argument all of which went to prove that it was his bounden duty not to interfere with the paternal government that was so anxious to make him a dean that when he arrived at the chemist's door in high street he hardly knew which way to turn himself in the matter 
but perplexed as he was he was doomed to further perplexity he found a note there from his daughter begging him most urgently to come to her immediately but we must again go back a little in our story miss thorne had not been slow to hear the rumours respecting mr arabin which had so much disturbed the happiness of mrs grantly and she also was unhappy to think that her parish clergyman should be accused of worshipping a strange goddess she also was of opinion that rectors and vicars should all be married and with that good-natured energy which was characteristic of her she put her wits to work to find a fitting match for mr arabin mrs grantly in this difficulty could think of no better remedy than a lecture from the archdeacon miss thorne thought that a young lady marriageable and with a dowry might be of more efficacy in looking through the catalogue of her unmarried friends who might possibly be in want of a husband and might also be fit for such promotion as a country parsonage affords she could think of no one more eligible than mrs bold consequently losing no time she went into barchester on the day of mr slope's discomfiture the same day that her brother had had his interesting interview with the last of the neros and invited mrs bold to bring her nurse and baby to ullathorne and make them a protracted visit miss thorne suggested a month or two intending to use her influence afterwards in prolonging it so as to last out the winter in order that mr arabin might have an opportunity of becoming fairly intimate with his intended bride we'll have mr arabin too said miss thorne to herself and before the spring they'll know each other and in twelve or eighteen months time if all goes well mrs bold will be domiciled at st ewold's and then the kind-hearted lady gave herself some not undeserved praise for her match-making genius eleanor was taken a little by surprise but the matter ended in her promising to go to ullathorne for at any rate a week or two on the day previous to that on which her father drove out to plumstead she had had herself driven out to ullathorne miss thorne would not perplex her with her embryo lord on that same evening thinking that she would allow her a few hours to make herself at home but on the following morning mr arabin arrived and now said miss thorne to herself i must contrive to throw them in each other's way that same day after dinner eleanor with an assumed air of dignity which she could not maintain with tears which she could not suppress with a flutter which she could not conquer and a joy which she could not hide told miss thorne that she was engaged to marry mr arabin and that it behoved her to get back home to barchester as quick as she could to say simply that miss thorne was rejoiced at the success of the scheme would give a very faint idea of her feelings on the occasion my readers may probably have dreamt before now that they have had before them some terribly long walk to accomplish some journey of twenty or thirty miles an amount of labour frightful to anticipate 
and that immediately on starting they have ingeniously found some accommodating short cut which has brought them without fatigue to their work's end in five minutes miss thorne's waking feelings were somewhat of the same nature my readers may perhaps have had to do with children and may on some occasion have promised to their young charges some great gratification intended to come off perhaps at the end of the winter or at the beginning of summer the impatient juveniles however will not wait and clamorously demand their treat before they go to bed miss thorne had a sort of feeling that her children were equally unreasonable she was like an inexperienced gunner who has ill calculated the length of the train that he has laid the gunpowder exploded much too soon and poor miss thorne felt that she was blown up by the strength of her own petard miss thorne had had lovers of her own but they had been gentlemen of old-fashioned and deliberate habits miss thorne's heart also had not always been hard though she was still a virgin spinster but it had never yielded in this way at the first assault she had intended to bring together a middle-aged studious clergyman and a discreet matron who might possibly be induced to marry again and in doing so she had thrown fire among tinder well it was all as it should be but she did feel perhaps a little put out by the precipitancy of her own success and perhaps a little vexed at the readiness of mrs bold to be wooed she said however nothing about it to any one and ascribed it all to the altered manners of the new age their mothers and grandmothers were perhaps a little more deliberate but it was admitted on all sides that things were conducted very differently now than in former times for aught miss thorne knew of the matter a couple of hours might be quite sufficient under the new regime to complete that for which she in her ignorance had allotted twelve months but we must not pass over the wooing so cavalierly it has been told with perhaps tedious accuracy how eleanor disposed of two of her lovers at ullathorne and it must also be told with equal accuracy and if possible with less tedium how she encountered mr arabin it cannot be denied that when eleanor accepted miss thorne's invitation she remembered that ullathorne was in the parish of st ewold's since her interview with the signora she had done little else than think about mr arabin and the appeal that had been made to her she could not bring herself to believe or try to bring herself to believe that what she had been told was untrue think of it how she would she could not but accept it as a fact that mr arabin was fond of her and then when she went further and asked herself the question she could not but accept it as a fact also that she was fond of him if it were destined for her to be the partner of his hopes and sorrows to whom could she look for friendship so properly as to miss thorne this invitation was like an ordained step towards the fulfilment of her destiny 
and when she also heard that mr arabin was expected to be at arathorn on the following day it seemed as though all the world were conspiring in her favour well did she not deserve it in that affair of mr slope had not all the world conspired against her she could not however make herself easy and at home when in the evening after dinner miss thorne expatiated on the excellence of mr arabin's qualities and hinted that any little rumour which might be ill-naturedly spread abroad concerning him really meant nothing mrs bold found herself unable to answer when miss thorne went a little further and declared that she did not know a prettier vicarage house in the county than st ewold's mrs bold remembering the projected bow-window and the projected priestess still held her tongue though her ears tingled with the conviction that all the world knew that she was in love with mr arabin well what would that matter if they could only meet and tell each other what each now longed to tell and they did meet mr arabin came early in the day and found the two ladies together at work in the drawing-room miss thorne who had she known all the truth would have vanished into air at once had no conception that her immediate absence would be a blessing and remained chatting with them till luncheon-time mr arabin could talk about nothing but the signora neroni's beauty would discuss no people but the stanhopes this was very distressing to eleanor and not very satisfactory to miss thorne but yet there was evidence of innocence in his open avowal of admiration and then they had lunch and then mr arabin went out on parish duty and eleanor and miss thorne were left to take a walk together do you think the signora neroni is so lovely as people say eleanor asked as they were coming home she is very beautiful certainly very beautiful miss thorne answered but i do not know that any one considers her lovely she is a woman all men would like to look at but few i imagine would be glad to take her to their hearths even were she unmarried and not afflicted as she is there was some little comfort in this eleanor made the most of it till she got back to the house she was then left alone in the drawing-room and just as it was getting dark mr arabin came in it was a beautiful afternoon in the beginning of october and eleanor was sitting in the window to get the advantage of the last daylight for her novel there was a fire in the comfortable room but the weather was not cold enough to make it attractive and as she could see the sun set from where she sat she was not very attentive to her book mr arabin when he entered stood a while with his back to the fire in his usual way merely uttering a few commonplace remarks about the beauty of the weather while he plucked up courage for more interesting converse it cannot probably be said that he had resolved then and there to make an offer to eleanor men we believe seldom make such resolves mr slope and mr stanhope had done so it is true 
but gentlemen generally propose without any absolutely defined determination as to their doing so such was now the case with mr adamin it is a lovely sunset said eleanor answering him on the dreadfully trite subject which he had chosen mr arabin could not see the sunset from the hearth-rug so he had to go close to her very lovely said he standing modestly so far away from her as to avoid touching the flounces of her dress then it appeared that he had nothing further to say so after gazing for a moment in silence at the brightness of the setting sun he returned to the fire eleanor found that it was quite impossible for herself to commence a conversation in the first place she could find nothing to say words which were generally plenty enough with her would not come to her relief and moreover do what she would she could hardly prevent herself from crying and do you like ullathorne said mr arabin speaking from the safely distant position which he had assumed on the hearth-rug yes indeed very much i don't mean mr and miss thorne i know you like them but the style of the house there is something about old-fashioned mansions built as this is and old-fashioned gardens that to me is especially delightful i like everything old-fashioned said eleanor old-fashioned things are so much the honestest i don't know about that said mr arabin gently laughing that is an opinion on which very much may be said on either side it is strange how widely the world is divided on a subject which so nearly concerns us all and which is so close beneath our eyes some think that we are quickly progressing towards perfection while others imagine that virtue is disappearing from the earth and you mr arabin what do you think said eleanor she felt somewhat surprised at the tone which his conversation was taking and yet she was relieved at his saying something which enabled herself to speak without showing her own emotion what do i think mrs bold and then he rumbled his money with his hands in his trousers pockets and looked and spoke very little like a thriving lover it is the bane of my life that on important subjects i acquire no fixed opinion i think and think and go on thinking and yet my thoughts are running ever in different directions i hardly know whether or no we do learn more confidently than our fathers did on those high hopes to which we profess to aspire i think the world grows more worldly every day said eleanor that is because you see more of it than when you were younger but we should hardly judge by what we see we see so very very little there was then a pause for a while during which mr arabin continued to turn over his shillings and half-crowns if we believe in scripture we can hardly think that mankind in general will now be allowed to retrograde eleanor whose mind was certainly engaged otherwise than on the general state of mankind made no answer to this she felt thoroughly dissatisfied with herself 
she could not force her thoughts away from the topic on which the signora had spoken to her in so strange a way and yet she knew that she could not converse with mr arabin in an unrestrained natural tone till she did so she was most anxious not to show to him any special emotion and yet she felt that if he looked at her he would at once see that she was not at ease but he did not look at her instead of doing so he left the fireplace and began walking up and down the room eleanor took up her book resolutely but she could not read for there was a tear in her eye and do what she would it fell on her cheek when mr arabin's back was turned to her she wiped it away but another was soon coursing down her face in its place they would come not a deluge of tears that would have betrayed her at once but one by one single monitors mr arabin did not observe her closely and they passed unseen mr arabin thus pacing up and down the room took four or five turns before he spoke another word and eleanor sat equally silent with her face bent over her book she was afraid that her tears would get the better of her and was preparing for an escape from the room when mr arabin in his walk stood opposite to her he did not come close up but stood exactly on the spot to which his course brought him and then with his hands under his coat-tails thus made his confession mrs bold said he i owe you retribution for a great offence of which i have been guilty towards you eleanor's heart beat so that she could not trust herself to say that he had never been guilty of any offence so mr arabin thus went on i have thought much of it since and i am now aware that i was wholly unwarranted in putting to you a question which i once asked you it was indelicate on my part and perhaps unmanly no intimacy which may exist between myself and your connection dr grantly could justify it nor could the acquaintance which existed between ourselves this word acquaintance struck cold on eleanor's heart was this to be her doom after all i therefore think it right to beg your pardon in a humble spirit and i now do so what was eleanor to say to him she could not say much because she was crying and yet she must say something she was most anxious to say that something graciously kindly and yet not in such a manner as to betray herself she had never felt herself so much at a loss for words indeed i took no offence mr arabin oh but you did and had you not done so you would not have been yourself you were as right to be offended as i was wrong so to offend you i have not forgiven myself but i hope to hear that you forgive me she was now past speaking calmly though she still continued to hide her tears and mr arabin after pausing a moment in vain for her reply 
was walking off towards the door she felt that she could not allow him to go unanswered without grievously sinning against all charity so rising from her seat she gently touched his arm and said oh mr arabin do not go till i speak to you i do forgive you you know that i forgive you he took the hand that had so gently touched his arm and then gazed into her face as if he would peruse there as though written in a book the whole future destiny of his life as he did so there was a sober sad seriousness in his own countenance which eleanor found herself unable to sustain she could only look down upon the carpet let her tears trickle as they would and leave her hand within his it was but for a minute that they stood so but the duration of that minute was sufficient to make it ever memorable to them both eleanor was sure now that she was loved no words be their eloquence what it might could be more impressive than that eager melancholy gaze why did he look so into her eyes why did he not speak to her could it be that he looked for her to make the first sign and he though he knew but little of women even he knew that he was loved he had only to ask and it would be all his own that inexpressible loveliness those ever-speaking but yet now mute eyes that feminine brightness and eager loving spirit which had so attracted him since first he had encountered it at st ewald's it might must all be his own now on no other supposition was it possible that she should allow her hand to remain thus clasped within his own he had only to ask ah but that was the difficulty did a minute suffice for all this nay perhaps it might be more than a minute mrs bold at last he said and then stopped himself if he could not speak how was she to do so he had called her by her name the same name that any merest stranger would have used she withdrew her hand from his and moved as though to return to her seat eleanor he then said in his softest tone as though the courage of a lover were as yet but half assumed as though he were still afraid of giving offence by the freedom which he took she looked slowly gently almost piteously up into his face there was at any rate no anger there to deter him eleanor he again exclaimed and in a moment he had her clasped to his bosom how this was done whether the doing was with him or her whether she had flown thither conquered by the tenderness of his voice or he with a violence not likely to give offence had drawn her to his breast neither of them knew nor can i declare there was now that sympathy between them which hardly admitted of individual motion they were one and the same one flesh one spirit one life 
Eleanor, my own Eleanor, my own, my wife. She ventured to look up at him through her tears, and he, bowing his face down over hers, pressed his lips upon her brow, his virgin lips, which since the beard first grew upon his chin had never yet tasted the luxury of a woman's cheek. She had been told that her yea must be yea, or her nay nay, but she was called on for neither the one nor the other. She told Miss Thorne that she was engaged to Mr. Arabin, but no such words had passed between them, no promises had been asked or given. "'Oh, let me go,' said she, "'let me go now. I am too happy to remain.' let me go that i may be alone he did not try to hinder her he did not repeat the kiss he did not press another on her lips he might have done so had he been so minded she was now all his own he took his arm from round her waist his arm that was trembling with a new delight and let her go she fled like a roe to her own chamber and then, having turned the bolt, she enjoyed the full luxury of her love. She idolized, almost worshipped this man, who had so meekly begged her pardon, and he was now her own. Oh, how she wept and cried and laughed as the hopes and fears and miseries of the last few weeks passed in remembrance through her mind mr slope that any one should have dared to think that she who had been chosen by him could possibly have mated herself with mr slope that they should have dared to tell him also and subject her bright happiness to such needless risk and then she smiled with joy as she thought of all the comforts that she could give him not that he cared for comforts, but that it would be so delicious for her to give. She got up and rang for her maid, that she might tell her little boy of his new father, and in her own way she did tell him. She desired her maid to leave her, in order that she might be alone with her child, and then, while he lay sprawling on the bed, she poured forth the praises, all unmeaning to him, of the man she had selected to guard his infancy. She could not be happy, however, till she had made Mr. Arabin take the child to himself, and thus, as it were, adopt him as his own. The moment the idea struck her, she took the baby up in her arms, and opening her door, ran quickly down to the drawing-room. She at once found, by his step still pacing on the floor, that he was there, and a glance within the room told her that he was alone. She hesitated a moment, and then hurried in with her precious charge. Mr. Arabin met her in the middle of the room. "'There,' said she, breathless with her haste, "'there, take him, take him, and love him.' Mr. Arabin took the little fellow from her, and, kissing him again and again, prayed God to bless him he shall be all as my own all as my own said he eleanor as she stooped to take back her child 
kissed the hand that held him and then rushed back with her treasure to her chamber it was thus that mr harding's younger daughter was won for the second time at dinner neither she nor mr arabin were very bright but their silence occasioned no remark in the drawing-room as we have before said she told miss thorne what had occurred the next morning she returned to barchester and mr arabin went over with his budget of news to the archdeacon as dr grantly was not there he could only satisfy himself by telling mrs grantly how that he intended himself the honour of becoming her brother-in-law in the ecstasy of her joy at hearing such tidings mrs grantly vouchsafed him a warmer welcome than any he had yet received from eleanor good heavens she exclaimed it was the general exclamation of the rectory poor eleanor dear eleanor what a monstrous injustice has been done her well it shall all be made up now and then she thought of the signora what lies people tell she said to herself but people in this matter had told no lies at all end of chapter forty eight recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter forty nine of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter forty nine the beelzebub colt when miss thorne left the dining-room eleanor had formed no intention of revealing to her what had occurred but when she was seated beside her hostess on the sofa the secret dropped from her almost unawares eleanor was but a bad hypocrite and she found herself quite unable to continue talking about mr arabin as though he were a stranger while her heart was full of him when miss thorne pursuing her own scheme with discreet zeal asked the young widow whether in her opinion it would not be a good thing for mr arabin to get married she had nothing for it but to confess the truth i suppose it would said eleanor rather sheepishly whereupon miss thorne amplified on the idea oh miss thorne said eleanor he is going to be married i am engaged to him now miss thorne knew very well that there had been no such engagement when she had been walking with mrs bold in the morning she had also heard enough to be tolerably sure that there had been no preliminaries to such an engagement she was therefore as we have before described taken a little by surprise but nevertheless she embraced her guest and cordially congratulated her eleanor had no opportunity of speaking another word to mr arabin that evening except such words as all the world might hear and these as may be supposed were few enough miss thorne did her best to leave them in privacy but mr thorne who knew nothing of what had occurred and another guest a friend of his 
entirely interfered with her good intentions so poor eleanor had to go to bed without one sign of affection her state nevertheless was not to be pitied the next morning she was up early it was probable she thought that by going down a little before the usual hour of breakfast she might find mr arabin alone in the dining-room might it not be that he also would calculate that an interview would thus be possible thus thinking eleanor was dressed a full hour before the time fixed in the ullathorne household for morning prayers she did not at once go down she was afraid to seem to be too anxious to meet her lover though heaven knows her anxiety was intense enough she therefore sat herself down at her window and repeatedly looking at her watch nursed her child till she thought she might venture forth when she found herself at the dining-room door she stood a moment hesitating to turn the handle but when she heard mr thorne's voice inside she hesitated no longer her object was defeated and she might now go in as soon as she liked without the slightest imputation on her delicacy mr thorne and mr arabin were standing on the hearth-rug discussing the merits of the beelzebub colt or rather mr thorne was discussing and mr arabin was listening that interesting animal had rubbed the stump of his tail against the wall of his stable and occasioned much uneasiness to the ullathorne master of the horse had eleanor but waited another minute mr thorne would have been in the stables mr thorne when he saw his lady guest repressed his anxiety the beelzebub colt must do without him and so the three stood saying little or nothing to each other till at last the master of the house finding that he could no longer bear his present state of suspense respecting his favourite young steed made an elaborate apology to mrs bold and escaped as he shut the door behind him eleanor almost wished that he had remained it was not that she was afraid of mr arabin but she hardly yet knew how to address him he however soon relieved her from her embarrassment he came up to her and taking both her hands in his he said so eleanor you and i are to be man and wife is it so she looked up into his face and her lips formed themselves into a single syllable she uttered no sound but he could read the affirmative plainly in her face it is a great trust said he a very great trust it is it is said eleanor not exactly taking what he had said in the sense that he had meant it is a very very great trust and i will do my utmost to deserve it and i also will do my utmost to deserve it said mr arabin very solemnly and then winding his arm round her waist he stood there gazing at the fire and she with her head leaning on his shoulder stood by him well satisfied with her position they neither of them spoke 
or found any want of speaking all that was needful for them to say had been said the yea yea had been spoken by eleanor in her own way and that way had been perfectly satisfactory to mr arabin and now it remained to them each to enjoy the assurance of the other's love and how great that luxury is how far it surpasses any other pleasure which god has allowed to his creatures and to a woman's heart how doubly delightful when the ivy has found its tower when the delicate creeper has found its strong wall we know how the parasite plants grow and prosper they were not created to stretch forth their branches alone and endure without protection the summer's sun and the winter's storm alone they but spread themselves on the ground and cower unseen in the dingy shade but when they have found their firm supporters how wonderful is their beauty how all-pervading and victorious what is the turret without its ivy or the high garden wall without the jasmine which gives it its beauty and fragrance the hedge without the honeysuckle is but a hedge there is a feeling still half existing but now half conquered by the force of human nature that a woman should be ashamed of her love till the husband's right to her compels her to acknowledge it we would fain preach a different doctrine a woman should glory in her love but on that account let her take the more care that it be such as to justify her glory eleanor did glory in hers and she felt and had cause to feel that it deserved to be held as glorious she could have stood there for hours with his arm round her had fate and mr thorne permitted it each moment she crept nearer to his bosom and felt more and more certain that there was her home what now to her was the archdeacon's arrogance her sister's coldness or her dear father's weakness what need she care for the duplicity of such friends as charlotte stanhope she had found the strong shield that should guard her from all wrongs the trusty pilot that should henceforward guide her through the shoals and rocks she would give up the heavy burden of her independence and once more assume the position of a woman and the duties of a trusting and loving wife and he too stood there fully satisfied with his place they were both looking intently on the fire as though they could read there their future fate till at last eleanor turned her face towards his how sad you are she said smiling and indeed his face was if not sad at least serious how sad you are love sad said he looking down at her no certainly not sad her sweet loving eyes were turned towards him and she smiled softly as he answered her 
the temptation was too strong even for the demure propriety of mr arabin and bending over her he pressed his lips to hers immediately after this mr thorne appeared and they were both delighted to hear that the tail of the beelzebub colt was not materially injured it had been mr harding's intention to hurry over to ullathorne as soon as possible after his return to barchester in order to secure the support of his daughter in his meditated revolt against the archdeacon as touching the deanery but he was spared the additional journey by hearing that mrs bold had returned unexpectedly home as soon as he had read her note he started off and found her waiting for him in her own house how much each of them had to tell the other and how certain each was that the story which he or she had to tell would astonish the other my dear i am so anxious to see you said mr harding kissing his daughter oh papa i have so much to tell you said the daughter returning the embrace my dear they have offered me the deanery said mr harding anticipating by the suddenness of the revelation the tidings which eleanor had to give him oh papa said she forgetting her own love and happiness in her joy at the surprising news oh papa can it be possible dear papa how thoroughly thoroughly happy that makes me but my dear i think it best to refuse it oh papa i am sure you will agree with me eleanor when i explain it to you you know my dear how old i am if i live i but papa i must tell you about myself well my dear i do so wonder how you'll take it take what if you don't rejoice at it if it doesn't make you happy if you don't encourage me i shall break my heart if that be the case nelly i certainly will encourage you but i fear you won't i do so fear you won't and yet you can't but think i am the most fortunate woman living on god's earth are you dearest then i certainly will rejoice with you come nelly come to me and tell me what it is i am going he led her to the sofa and seating himself beside her took both her hands in his you are going to be married nelly is not that it yes she said faintly that is if you will approve and then she blushed as she remembered the promise which she had so lately volunteered to him and which she had so utterly forgotten in making her engagement with mr arabin mr harding thought for a moment who the man could be whom he was to be called upon to welcome as his son-in-law 
a week since he would have had no doubt whom to name in that case he would have been prepared to give his sanction although he would have done so with a heavy heart now he knew that at any rate it would not be mr slope though he was perfectly at a loss to guess who could possibly have filled the place for a moment he thought that the man might be bertie stanhope and his very soul sank within him well nelly oh papa promise to me that for my sake you will love him come nelly come tell me who it is but will you love him papa dearest i must love any one that you love then she turned her face to his and whispered into his ear the name of mr arabin no man that she could have named could have more surprised or more delighted him had he looked round the world for a son-in-law to his taste he could have selected no one whom he would have preferred to mr arabin he was a clergyman he held a living in the neighbourhood he was of a set to which all mr harding's own partialities most closely adhered he was the great friend of dr grantly and he was moreover a man of whom mr harding knew nothing but what he approved nevertheless his surprise was so great as to prevent the immediate expression of his joy he had never thought of mr arabin in connection with his daughter he had never imagined that they had any feeling in common he had feared that his daughter had been made hostile to clergymen of mr arabin's stamp by her intolerance of the archdeacon's pretensions had he been put to wish he might have wished for mr arabin for a son-in-law but had he been put to guess the name would never have occurred to him mr arabin he exclaimed impossible oh papa for heaven's sake don't say anything against him if you love me don't say anything against him oh papa it's done and mustn't be undone oh papa fickle eleanor where was the promise that she would make no choice for herself without her father's approval she had chosen and now demanded his acquiescence oh papa isn't he good isn't he noble isn't he religious high-minded everything that a good man possibly can be she clung to her father beseeching him for his consent my nelly my child my own daughter he is he is noble and good and high-minded he is all that a woman can love 
and a man admire he shall be my son my own son he shall be as close to my heart as you are my nelly my child my happy happy child we need not pursue the interview any further by degrees they returned to the subject of the new promotion eleanor tried to prove to him as the grantlys had done that his age could be no bar to his being a very excellent dean but those arguments had now even less weight on him than before he said little or nothing but sat meditative every now and then he would kiss his daughter and say yes or no or very true or well my dear i can't quite agree with you there but he could not be got to enter sharply into the question of to be or not to be dean of barchester of her and her happiness of mr arabin and his virtues he would talk as much as eleanor desired and to tell the truth that was not a little but about the deanery he would now say nothing further he had got a new idea into his head why should not mr arabin be the new dean end of chapter forty nine recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter fifty of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter fifty the archdeacon is satisfied with the state of affairs the archdeacon in his journey into barchester had been assured by mr harding that all their prognostications about mr slope and eleanor were groundless mr harding however had found it very difficult to shake his son-in-law's faith in his own acuteness the matter had to dr grantly been so plainly corroborated by such patent evidence born out of such endless circumstances that he at first refused to take as true the positive statement which mr harding made to him of eleanor's own disavowal of the impeachment but at last he yielded in a qualified way he brought himself to admit that he would at the present regard his past convictions as a mistake but in doing this he so guarded himself that if at any future time eleanor should come forth to the world as mrs slope he might still be able to say there i told you so remember what you said and what i said and remember also for coming years that i was right in this matter as in all others he carried however his concession so far as to bring himself 
to undertake to call at Eleanor's house, and he did call accordingly, while the father and daughter were yet in the middle of their conference. Mr. Harding had had so much to hear and to say that he had forgotten to advise Eleanor of the honour that awaited her and she heard her brother-in-law's voice in the hall while she was quite unprepared to see him there's the archdeacon she said springing up yes my dear he told me to tell you that he would come and see you but to tell the truth i had forgotten all about it eleanor fled away regardless of all her father's entreaties she could not now in the first hours of her joy bring herself to bear all the archdeacon's retractions apologies and congratulations he would have so much to say and would be so tedious in saying it consequently the archdeacon when he was shown into the drawing-room found no one there but mr harding you must excuse eleanor said mr harding is anything the matter asked the doctor who at once anticipated that the whole truth about mr slope had at last come out well something is the matter i wonder now whether you will be much surprised the archdeacon saw by his father-in-law's manner that after all he had nothing to tell him about mr slope no said he certainly not nothing will ever surprise me again very many men nowadays besides the archdeacon adopt or affect to adopt the nil admirari doctrine but nevertheless to judge from their appearance they are just as subject to sudden emotions as their grandfathers and grandmothers were before them what do you think mr arabin has done mr arabin it's nothing about that daughter of stanhope's i hope no not that woman said mr harding enjoying his joke in his sleeve not that woman is he going to do anything about any woman why can't you speak out if you have anything to say there is nothing i hate so much as these sort of mysteries there shall be no mystery with you archdeacon though of course it must go no further at present well except susan you must promise me you'll tell no one else nonsense exclaimed the archdeacon who was becoming angry in his suspense you can't have any secret about mr arabin only this that he and eleanor are engaged it was quite clear to see by the archdeacon's face that he did not believe a word of it mr arabin it's impossible eleanor at any rate has just now told me so 
it's impossible repeated the archdeacon well i can't say i think it impossible it certainly took me by surprise but that does not make it impossible she must be mistaken mr harding assured him that there was no mistake that he would find on returning home that mr arabin had been to plumstead with the express object of making the same declaration that even miss thorne knew all about it and that in fact the thing was as clearly settled as any such arrangement between a lady and a gentleman could well be good heavens said the archdeacon walking up and down eleanor's drawing-room good heavens good heavens now these exclamations certainly betokened faith mr harding properly gathered from it that at last dr grantly did believe the fact the first utterance clearly evinced a certain amount of distaste at the information he had received the second simply indicated surprise in the tone of the third mr harding fancied that he could catch a certain gleam of satisfaction the archdeacon had truly expressed the workings of his mind he could not but be disgusted to find how utterly astray he had been in all his anticipations had he only been lucky enough to have suggested this marriage himself when he first brought mr arabin into the country his character for judgment and wisdom would have received an addition which would have classed him at any rate next to solomon and why had he not done so might he not have foreseen that mr arabin would want a wife in his parsonage he had foreseen that eleanor would want a husband but should he not also have perceived that mr arabin was a man much more likely to attract her than mr slope the archdeacon found that he had been at fault and of course could not immediately get over his discomfiture then his surprise was intense how sly this pair of young turtle-doves had been with him how egregiously they had hoaxed him he had preached to eleanor against her fancied attachment to mr slope at the very time that she was in love with his own protege mr arabin and had absolutely taken that same mr arabin into his confidence with reference to his dread of mr slope's alliance it was very natural that the archdeacon should feel surprise but there was also great ground for satisfaction looking at the match by itself 
it was the very thing to help the doctor out of his difficulties in the first place the assurance that he should never have mr slope for his brother-in-law was in itself a great comfort then mr arabin was of all men the one with whom it would best suit him to be so intimately connected but the crowning comfort was the blow which this marriage would give to mr slope he had now certainly lost his wife rumour was beginning to whisper that he might possibly lose his position in the palace and if mr harding would only be true the great danger of all would be surmounted in such case it might be expected that mr slope would own himself vanquished and take himself altogether away from barchester and so the archdeacon would again be able to breathe pure air well well said he good heavens good heavens and the tone of the fifth exclamation made mr harding fully aware that content was reigning in the archdeacon's bosom and then slowly gradually and craftily mr harding propounded his own new scheme why should not mr arabin be the new dean slowly gradually and thoughtfully dr grantly fell into his father-in-law's views much as he liked mr arabin sincere as was his admiration for that gentleman's ecclesiastical abilities he would not have sanctioned a measure which would rob his father-in-law of his fairly earned promotion were it at all practicable to induce his father-in-law to accept the promotion which he had earned but the archdeacon had on a former occasion received proof of the obstinacy with which mr harding could adhere to his own views in opposition to the advice of all his friends he knew tolerably well that nothing would induce the meek mild man before him to take the high place offered to him if he thought it wrong to do so knowing this he also said to himself more than once why should not mr arabin be dean of barchester it was at last arranged between them that they would together start to london by the earliest train on the following morning making a little detour to oxford on their journey dr gwynne's counsels they imagined might perhaps be of assistance to them these matters settled the archdeacon hurried off that he might return to plumstead and prepare for his journey the day was extremely fine and he came into the city in an open gig 
as he was driving up the high street he encountered mr slope at a crossing had he not pulled up rather sharply he would have run over him the two had never spoken to each other since they had met on a memorable occasion in the bishop's study they did not speak now but they looked each other full in the face and mr slope's countenance was as impudent as triumphant as defiant as ever had dr grantly not known to the contrary he would have imagined that his enemy had won the deanship the wife and all the rich honours for which he had been striving as it was he had lost everything that he had in the world and had just received his congé from the bishop in leaving the town the archdeacon drove by the well-remembered entrance of hiram's hospital there at the gate was a large untidy farmer's wagon laden with untidy-looking furniture and there inspecting the arrival was good mrs quiverful not dressed in her sunday best not very clean in her apparel not graceful as to her bonnet and shawl or indeed with many feminine charms as to her whole appearance she was busy at domestic work in her new house and had just ventured out expecting to see no one on the arrival of the family chattels the archdeacon was down upon her before she knew where she was her acquaintance with dr grantly or his family was very slight indeed the archdeacon as a matter of course knew every clergyman in the archdeaconry it may almost be said in the diocese and had some acquaintance more or less intimate with their wives and families with mr quiverful he had been concerned on various matters of business but of mrs q he had seen very little now however he was in too gracious a mood to pass her by unnoticed the quiverfuls one and all had looked for the bitterest hostility from dr grantly they knew his anxiety that mr harding should return to his old home at the hospital and they did not know that a new home had been offered to him at the deanery mrs quiverful was therefore not a little surprised and not a little rejoiced also at the tone in which she was addressed how do you do mrs quiverful how do you do said he stretching his left hand out of the gig as he spoke to her i am very glad to see you employed in so pleasant and useful a manner very glad indeed mrs quiverful thanked him and shook hands with him and looked into his face suspiciously she was not sure whether the congratulations and kindness were or were not ironical pray tell mr quiverful from me he continued that i am rejoiced at his appointment it's a comfortable place mrs quiverful and a comfortable house and i am very glad to see you in it good-bye good-bye and he drove on leaving the lady well pleased and astonished at his good-nature on the whole things were going well with the archdeacon and he could afford to be charitable to mrs quiverful he looked forth from his gig smilingly on all the world 
and forgave everyone in barchester their sins excepting only mrs proudie and mr slope had he seen the bishop he would have felt inclined to pat even him kindly on the head he determined to go home by st ewold's this would take him some three miles out of his way but he felt that he could not leave plumstead comfortably without saying one word of good fellowship to mr arabin when he reached the parsonage the vicar was still out but from what he had heard he did not doubt but that he would meet him on the road between their two houses he was right in this but about half-way home at a narrow turn he came upon mr arabin who was on horseback well 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 said the archdeacon loudly joyously and with supreme good humour well 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 so after all we have no further cause to fear mr slope i hear from mrs grantly that they have offered the deanery to mr harding said the other mr slope has lost more than the deanery i find and then the archdeacon laughed jocosely come come arabin you have kept your secret well enough i know all about it now i have had no secret archdeacon said the other with a quiet smile none at all not for a day it was only yesterday that i knew my own good fortune and to-day i went over to plumstead to ask your approval from what mrs grantly has said to me i am led to hope that i shall have it with all my heart with all my heart said the archdeacon cordially holding his friend fast by the hand it's just as i would have it she is an excellent young woman she will not come to you empty-handed and i think she will make you a good wife if she does her duty by you as her sister does by me you'll be a happy man that's all i can say and as he finished speaking a tear might have been observed in each of the doctor's eyes mr arabin warmly returned the archdeacon's grasp but he said little his heart was too full for speaking and he could not express the gratitude which he felt dr grantly understood him as well as though he had spoken for an hour and mind arabin said he no one but myself shall tie the knot we'll get eleanor out to plumstead and it shall come off there i'll make susan stir herself and we'll do it in style i must be off to london to-morrow on special business harding goes with me but i'll be back before your bride has got her wedding-dress ready and so they parted on his journey home the archdeacon occupied his mind with preparations for the marriage festivities he made a great resolve that he would atone to eleanor for all the injury he had done her by the munificence of his future treatment he would show her what was the difference in his eyes between a slope and an arabin 
on one other thing also he decided with a firm mind if the affair of the dean should not be settled in mr arabin's favour nothing should prevent him putting a new front and bow window to the dining-room at st ewold's parsonage so we're sold after all sue said he to his wife accosting her with a kiss as soon as he entered his house he did not call his wife sue above twice or thrice in a year and these occasions were great high days eleanor has had more sense than we gave her credit for said mrs grantly and there was great content in plumstead rectory that evening mrs grantly promised her husband that she would now open her heart and take mr arabin into it hitherto she had declined to do so End of chapter fifty Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter fifty one of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter fifty one Mr. Slope bids farewell to the palace and its inhabitants. We must now take leave of Mr. Slope, and of the Bishop also, and of Mrs. Proudie. These leave-takings in novels are as disagreeable as they are in real life. Not so sad, indeed, for they want the reality of sadness, but quite as perplexing and generally less satisfactory. What novelist, what Fielding, what Scott, what Chargesant, or Sue, or Dumas, can impart an interest to the last chapter of his fictitious history. Promises of two children and superhuman happiness are of no avail, nor assurance of extreme respectability carried to an age far exceeding that usually allotted to mortals. The sorrows of our heroes and heroines, they are your delight, O public their sorrows or their sins or their absurdities not their virtues good sense and consequent rewards when we begin to tint our final pages with couleur de rose as in accordance with fixed rule we must do we altogether extinguish our own powers of pleasing when we become dull we offend your intellect and we must become dull or we should offend your taste a late writer wishing to sustain his interest to the last page hung his hero at the end of the third volume the consequence was that no one would read his novel and who can apportion out and dovetail his incidents dialogues characters and descriptive morsels so as to fit them all exactly into nine hundred and thirty pages without either compressing them unnaturally or extending them artificially at the end of his labour do i not myself know that i am at this moment in want of a dozen pages and that i am sick with cudgelling my brains to find them and then when everything is done the kindest-hearted critic of them all invariably twits us with the incompetency and lameness of our conclusion 
we have either become idle and neglected it or tedious and over-laboured it it is insipid or unnatural overstrained or imbecile it means nothing or attempts too much the last scene of all as all last scenes we fear must be is second childishness and mere oblivion sans teeth sans eyes sans taste sans everything i can only say that if some critic who thoroughly knows his work and has laboured on it till experience has made him perfect will write the last fifty pages of a novel in the way they should be written i for one will in future do my best to copy the example guided by my own lights only i confess that i despair of success for the last week or ten days mr slope had seen nothing of mrs proudie and very little of the bishop he still lived in the palace and still went through his usual routine work but the confidential doings of the diocese had passed into other hands he had seen this clearly and marked it well but it had not much disturbed him he had indulged in other hopes till the bishop's affairs had become dull to him and he was moreover aware that as regarded the diocese mrs proudie had checkmated him it has been explained in the beginning of these pages how three or four were contending together as to who in fact should be bishop of barchester each of these had now admitted to himself or boasted to herself that mrs proudie was victorious in the struggle they had gone through a competitive examination of considerable severity and she had come forth the winner facile princeps mr slope had for a moment run her hard but it was only for a moment it had become as it were acknowledged that hiram's hospital should be the testing-point between them and now mr quiverful was already in the hospital the proof of mrs proudie's skill and courage all this did not break down mr slope's spirit because he had other hopes but alas at last there came to him a note from his friend sir nicholas informing him that the deanship was disposed of let us give mr slope his due he did not lie prostrate under this blow or give himself up to vain lamentations he did not henceforward despair of life and call upon gods above and gods below to carry him off he sat himself down in his chair counted out what monies he had in hand for present purposes and what others were coming in to him bethought himself as to the best sphere for his future exertions and at once wrote off a letter to a rich sugar refiner's wife in baker street who as he well knew was much given to the entertainment and encouragement of serious young evangelical clergymen he was again he said 
upon the world having found the air of a cathedral town and the very nature of cathedral services uncongenial to his spirit and then he sat a while making firm resolves as to his manner of parting from the bishop and also as to his future conduct at last he rose and twitched his mantle blue black to-morrow to fresh woods and pastures new having received a formal command to wait upon the bishop he rose and proceeded to obey it he rang the bell and desired the servant to inform his master that if it suited his lordship he mr slope was ready to wait upon him the servant who well understood that mr slope was no longer in the ascendant brought back a message saying that his lordship desired that mr slope would attend him immediately in his study mr slope waited about ten minutes more to prove his independence and then he went into the bishop's room there as he had expected he found mrs proudie together with her husband um, uh, mr slope pray take a chair said the gentleman bishop pray be seated mr slope said the lady bishop thank ye thank ye said mr slope and walking round to the fire he threw himself into one of the armchairs that graced the hearthrug mr slope said the bishop it has become necessary that i should speak to you definitively on a matter that has for some time been pressing itself on my attention may i ask whether the subject is in any way connected with myself said mr slope it is so certainly yes it certainly is connected with yourself mr slope then my lord if i may be allowed to express a wish i would prefer that no discussion on the subject should take place between us in the presence of a third person don't alarm yourself mr slope said mrs proudie no discussion is at all necessary the bishop merely intends to express his own wishes i merely intend mr slope to express my own wishes uh, no discussion will be at all necessary said the bishop reiterating his wife's words that is more my lord than we any of us can be sure of said mr slope i cannot however force mrs proudie to leave the room nor can i refuse to remain here if it be your lordship's wish that i should do so it is his lordship's wish certainly said mrs proudie mr slope began the bishop in a solemn serious voice it grieves me to have to find fault it grieves me much to have to find fault with a clergyman but especially so with a clergyman in your position why what have i done amiss my lord 
demanded mr slope boldly what have you done amiss mr slope said mrs proudie standing erect before the culprit and raising that terrible forefinger do you dare to ask the bishop what you have done amiss does not your conscience mrs proudie pray let it be understood once for all that i will have no words with you ah sir but you will have words said she you must have words why have you had so many words with that signora nironi why have you disgraced yourself you a clergyman too by constantly consorting with such a woman as that with a married woman with one altogether unfit for a clergyman's society at any rate i was introduced to her in your drawing-room retorted mr slope and shamefully you behaved there said mrs proudie most shamefully i was wrong to allow you to remain in the house a day after what i then saw i should have insisted on your instant dismissal i have yet to learn mrs proudie that you have the power to insist either on my going from hence or on my staying here what said the lady i am not to have the privilege of saying who shall and who shall not frequent my own drawing-room i am not to save my servants and dependents from having their morals corrupted by improper conduct i am not to save my own daughters from impurity i will let you see mr slope whether i have the power or whether i have not you will have the goodness to understand that you no longer fill any situation about the bishop and as your room will be immediately wanted in the palace for another chaplain i must ask you to provide yourself with apartments as soon as may be convenient to you my lord said mr slope appealing to the bishop and so turning his back completely on the lady will you permit me to ask that i may have from your own lips any decision that you may have come to on this matter certainly mr slope certainly said the bishop that is but reasonable well my decision is that you had better look for some other preferment for the situation which you have lately held i do not think that you are well suited and what my lord has been my fault that signora nironi is one fault said mrs proudie and a very abominable fault she is very abominable and very disgraceful fie mr slope fie you an evangelical clergyman indeed my lord i desire to know for what fault i am turned out of your lordship's house you hear what mrs proudie says said the bishop when i publish the history of this transaction my lord as i decidedly shall do in my own vindication i presume you will not wish me to state that you have discarded me at your wife's bidding 
because she has objected to my being acquainted with another lady the daughter of one of the prebendaries of the chapter you may publish what you please sir said mrs proudie but you will not be insane enough to publish any of your doings in barchester do you think i have not heard of your kneelings at that creature's feet that is if she has any feet and of your constant slobbering over her hand i advise you to beware mr slope of what you do and say clergymen have been unfrocked for less than what you have been guilty of my lord if this goes on i shall be obliged to indict this woman mrs proudie i mean for defamation of character i think mr slope you had better now retire said the bishop i will enclose to you a cheque for any balance that may be due to you under the present circumstances it will of course be better for all parties that you should leave the palace at the earliest possible moment i will allow you for your journey back to london and for your maintenance in barchester for a week from this date if however you wish to remain in this neighbourhood said mrs proudie and will solemnly pledge yourself never again to see that woman and will promise also to be more circumspect in your conduct the bishop will mention your name to mr quiverful who now wants a curate at puddingdale the house is i imagine quite sufficient for your requirements and there will moreover be a stipend of fifty pounds a year may god forgive you madam for the manner in which you have treated me said mr slope looking at her with a very heavenly look and remember this madam that you yourself may still have a fall and he looked at her with a very worldly look as to the bishop i pity him and so saying mr slope left the room thus ended the intimacy of the bishop of barchester with his first confidential chaplain mrs proudie was right in this namely that mr slope was not insane enough to publish to the world any of his doings in barchester he did not trouble his friend mr towers with any written statement of the iniquity of mrs proudie or the imbecility of her husband he was aware that it would be wise in him to drop for the future all allusion to his doings in the cathedral city soon after the interview just recorded he left barchester shaking the dust off his feet as he entered the railway carriage and he gave no longing lingering look after the cathedral towers as the train hurried him quickly out of their sight it is well known that the family of the slopes never starve they always fall on their feet like cats and let them fall where they will they live on the fat of the land our mr slope did so on his return to town he found that the sugar refiner had died and that his widow was inconsolable in other words in want of consolation mr slope consoled her and soon found himself settled with much comfort 
in the house in baker street he possessed himself also before long of a church in the vicinity of the red road and became known to fame as one of the most eloquent preachers and pious clergymen in that part of the metropolis there let us leave him of the bishop and his wife very little further need be said from that time forth nothing material occurred to interrupt the even course of their domestic harmony very speedily a further vacancy on the bench of bishops gave to dr proudie the seat in the house of lords which he at first so anxiously longed for but by this time he had become a wiser man he did certainly take his seat and occasionally registered a vote in favour of government views on ecclesiastical matters but he had thoroughly learnt that his proper sphere of action lay in close contiguity with mrs proudie's wardrobe he never again aspired to disobey or seemed even to wish for autocratic diocesan authority if ever he thought of freedom he did so as men think of the millennium as of a good time which may be coming but which nobody expects to come in their day mrs proudie might be said still to bloom and was at any rate strong and the bishop had no reason to apprehend that he would be speedily visited with the sorrows of a widower's life he is still bishop of barchester he has so graced that throne that the government has been averse to translate him even to higher dignities there may he remain under safe pupilage till the new-fangled manners of the age have discovered him to be superannuated and bestowed on him a pension as for mrs proudie our prayers for her are that she may live for ever end of chapter fifty one recording by nick whitley purley united kingdom chapter fifty two of barchester towers by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter 52 The New Dean Takes Possession of the Deanery and the New Warden of the Hospital. Mr. Harding and the Archdeacon together made their way to Oxford, and there, by dint of cunning argument, they induced the Master of Lazarus also to ask himself this momentous question why should not mr arabin be dean of barchester he of course for a while tried his hand at persuading mr harding that he was foolish overscrupulous self-willed and weak-minded but he tried in vain if mr harding would not give way to dr grantly it was not likely that he would give way to dr gwynne more especially now that so admirable a scheme as that of inducting mr arabin into the deanery had been set on foot when the master found that his eloquence was vain and heard also that mr arabin was about to become mr harding's son-in-law he confessed that he also would under such circumstances be glad to see his old friend and protege the fellow of his college placed in the comfortable position that was going a-begging 
it might be the means you know master of keeping mr slope out said the archdeacon with grave caution he has no more chance of it said the master than our college chaplain i know more about it than that mrs grantly had been right in her surmise it was the master of lazarus who had been instrumental in representing in high places the claims which mr harding had upon the government and he now consented to use his best endeavours towards getting the offer transferred to mr arabin the three of them went on to london together and there they remained a week to the great disgust of mrs grantly and most probably also of mrs gwynne the minister was out of town in one direction and his private secretary in another the clerks who remained could do nothing in such a matter as this and all was difficulty and confusion the two doctors seemed to have plenty to do they bustled here and they bustled there and complained at their club in the evenings that they had been driven off their legs but mr harding had no occupation once or twice he suggested that he might perhaps return to barchester his request however was peremptorily refused and he had nothing for it but to while away his time in westminster abbey at length an answer from the great man came the master of lazarus had made his proposition through the bishop of belgravia now this bishop though but newly gifted with his diocesan honours was a man of much weight in the clerico-political world he was if not as pious at any rate as wise as st paul and had been with so much effect all things to all men that though he was great among the dons of oxford he had been selected for the most favourite seat on the bench by a whig prime minister to him dr gwynne had made known his wishes and his arguments and the bishop had made them known to the marquis of kensington gore the marquis who was lord high steward of the pantry board and who by most men was supposed to hold the highest office out of the cabinet trafficked much in affairs of this kind he not only suggested the arrangement to the minister over a cup of coffee standing on a drawing-room rug in windsor castle but he also favourably mentioned mr arabin's name in the ear of a distinguished person and so the matter was arranged the answer of the great man came and mr arabin was made dean of barchester the three clergymen who had come up to town on this important mission dined together with great glee on the day on which the news reached them in a silent decent clerical manner they toasted mr arabin with full bumpers of claret the satisfaction of all of them was supreme the master of lazarus had been successful in his attempt and success is dear to us all the archdeacon had trampled upon mr slope and had lifted to high honours the young clergyman whom he had induced to quit the retirement and comfort of the university so at least the archdeacon thought 
though to speak sooth not he but circumstances had trampled on mr slope but the satisfaction of mr harding was of all perhaps the most complete he laid aside his usual melancholy manner and brought forth little quiet jokes from the inmost mirth of his heart he poked his fun at the archdeacon about mr slope's marriage and quizzed him for his improper love for mrs proudie on the following day they all returned to barchester it was arranged that mr arabin should know nothing of what had been done till he received the minister's letter from the hands of his embryo father-in-law in order that no time might be lost a message had been sent to him by the preceding night's post begging him to be at the deanery at the hour that the train from london arrived there was nothing in this which surprised mr arabin it had somehow got about through all barchester that mr harding was the new dean and all barchester was prepared to welcome him with pealing bells and full hearts mr slope had certainly had a party there had certainly been those in barchester who were prepared to congratulate him on his promotion with assumed sincerity but even his own party was not broken-hearted by his failure the inhabitants of the city even the high-souled ecstatic young ladies of thirty-five had begun to comprehend that their welfare and the welfare of the place was connected in some mysterious manner with daily chants and bi-weekly anthems the expenditure of the palace had not added much to the popularity of the bishop's side of the question and on the whole there was a strong reaction when it became known to all the world that mr harding was to be the new dean all the world rejoiced heartily mr arabin we have said was not surprised at the summons which called him to the deanery he had not as yet seen mr harding since eleanor had accepted him nor had he seen him since he had learnt his future father-in-law's preferment there was nothing more natural more necessary than that they should meet each other at the earliest possible moment mr arabin was waiting in the deanery parlour when mr harding and dr grantly were driven up from the station there was some excitement in the bosoms of them all as they met and shook hands by far too much to enable either of them to begin his story and tell it in a proper equable style of narrative mr harding was some minutes quite dumbfounded and mr arabin could only talk in short spasmodic sentences about his love and good fortune he slipped in as best he could some sort of congratulation about the deanship and then went on with his hopes and fears hopes that he might be received as a son and fears that he hardly deserved such good fortune then he went back to the dean it was the most thoroughly satisfactory appointment he said of which he had ever heard but 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 said mr harding and then failing to get any further he looked imploringly at the archdeacon the truth is arabin 
said the doctor that after all you are not destined to be son-in-law to a dean nor am i either more's the pity mr arabin looked at him for explanation is not mr harding to be the new dean it appears not said the archdeacon mr arabin's face fell a little and he looked from one to the other it was plainly to be seen from them both that there was no cause of unhappiness in the matter at least not of unhappiness to them but there was as yet no elucidation of the mystery think how old i am said mr harding imploringly fiddlestick said the archdeacon that's all very well but it won't make a young man of me said mr harding and who is to be dean asked mr arabin yes that's the question said the archdeacon come mr precentor since you obstinately refuse to be anything else let us know who is to be the man he has got the nomination in his pocket with his eyes brimful of tears mr harding pulled out the letter and handed it to his future son-in-law he tried to make a little speech but failed altogether having given up the document he turned round to the wall feigning to blow his nose and then sat himself down on the old dean's dingy horsehair sofa and here we find it necessary to bring our account of the interview to an end nor can we pretend to describe the rapture with which mr harding was received by his daughter she wept with grief and wept with joy with grief that her father should in his old age still be without that rank and worldly position which according to her ideas he had so well earned and with joy in that he her darling father should have bestowed on that other dear one the good things of which he himself would not open his hand to take possession and here mr harding again showed his weakness in the melee of this exposal of their loves and reciprocal affection he found himself unable to resist the entreaties of all parties that the lodgings in the high street should be given up eleanor would not live in the deanery she said unless her father lived there also mr arabin would not be dean unless mr harding would be co-dean with him the archdeacon declared that his father-in-law should not have his own way in everything and mrs grantly carried him off to plumstead that he might remain there till mr and mrs arabin were in a state to receive him in their own mansion pressed by such arguments as these what could a weak old man do but yield but there was yet another task which it behoved mr harding to do before he could allow himself to be at rest little has been said in these pages of the state of those remaining old men who had lived under his sway at the hospital but not on this account must it be presumed that he had forgotten them 
or that in their state of anarchy and in their want of due government he had omitted to visit them he visited them constantly and had latterly given them to understand that they would soon be required to subscribe their adherence to a new master there were now but five of them one of them having been but quite lately carried to his rest but five of the full number which had hitherto been twelve and which was now to be raised to twenty-four including women of these old bunce who for many years had been the favourite of the late warden was one and abel handy who had been the humble means of driving that warden from his home was another mr harding now resolved that he himself would introduce the new warden to the hospital he felt that many circumstances might conspire to make the men receive mr quiverful with aversion and disrespect he felt also that mr quiverful might himself feel some qualms of conscience if he entered the hospital with an idea that he did so in hostility to his predecessor mr harding therefore determined to walk in arm in arm with mr quiverful and to ask from these men their respectful obedience to their new master on returning to barchester he found that mr quiverful had not yet slept in the hospital house or entered on his new duties he accordingly made known to that gentleman his wishes and his proposition was not rejected it was a bright clear morning though in november that mr harding and mr quiverful arm in arm walked through the hospital gate it was one tray in our old friend's character that he did nothing with parade he omitted even in the more important doings of his life that sort of parade by which most of us deem it necessary to grace our important doings we have housewarmings christenings and gala days we keep if not our own birthdays those of our children we are apt to fuss ourselves if called upon to change our residences and have almost all of us our little state occasions mr harding had no state occasions when he left his old house he went forth from it with the same quiet composure as though he were merely taking his daily walk now that he re-entered it with another warden under his wing he did so with the same quiet step and calm demeanour he was a little less upright than he had been five years nay it was now nearly six years ago he walked perhaps a little slower his footfall was perhaps a thought less firm otherwise one might have said that he was merely returning with a friend under his arm this friendliness was everything to mr quiverful to him even in his poverty the thought that he was supplanting a brother clergyman so kind and courteous as mr harding had been very bitter under his circumstances it had been impossible for him to refuse the proffered boon he could not reject the bread that was offered to his children or refuse to ease the heavy burden that had so long oppressed that poor wife of his 
nevertheless it had been very grievous to him to think that in going to the hospital he might encounter the ill-will of his brethren in the diocese all this mr harding had fully comprehended it was for such feelings as these for the nice comprehension of such motives that his heart and intellect were peculiarly fitted in most matters of worldly import the archdeacon set down his father-in-law as little better than a fool and perhaps he was right but in some other matters equally important if they be rightly judged mr harding had he been so minded might with as much propriety have set down his son-in-law for a fool few men however are constituted as was mr harding he had that nice appreciation of the feelings of others which belongs of right exclusively to women arm in arm they walked into the inner quadrangle of the building and there the five old men met them mr harding shook hands with them all and then mr quiverful did the same with bunce mr harding shook hands twice and mr quiverful was about to repeat the same ceremony but the old man gave him no encouragement i am very glad to know that at last you have a new warden said mr harding in a very cheery voice we be very old for any change said one of them but we do suppose it be all for the best certainly certainly it is for the best said mr harding you will again have a clergyman of your own church under the same roof with you and a very excellent clergyman you will have it is a great satisfaction to me to know that so good a man is coming to take care of you and that it is no stranger but a friend of my own who will allow me from time to time to come in and see you away be very thankful to your reverence said another of them i need not tell you my good friends said mr quiverful how extremely grateful i am to mr harding for his kindness to me i must say his uncalled-for unexpected kindness he be always very kind said a third what i can do to fill the void which he left here i will do for your sake and my own i will do so and especially for his sake but to you who have known him i can never be the same well-loved friend and father that he has been no sir no said old bunce who hitherto had held his peace no one can be that not if the new bishop sent a hangel to us out of heaven we doesn't doubt you'll do your best sir but you'll not be like the old master not to us old ones fie bunce fie how dare you talk in that way said mr harding but as he scolded the old man he still held him by his arm 
and pressed it with warm affection there was no getting up any enthusiasm in the matter how could five old men tottering away to their final resting-place be enthusiastic on the reception of a stranger what could mr quiverful be to them or they to mr quiverful had mr harding indeed come back to them some last flicker of joyous light might have shone forth on their aged cheeks but it was in vain to bid them rejoice because mr quiverful was about to move his fourteen children from puddingdale into the hospital house in reality they did no doubt receive advantage spiritual as well as corporal but this they could neither anticipate nor acknowledge it was a dull affair enough this introduction of mr quiverful but still it had its effect the good which mr harding intended did not fall to the ground all the barchester world including the five old bedesmen treated mr quiverful with the more respect because mr harding had thus walked in arm in arm with him on his first entrance to his duties and here in their new abode we will leave mr and mrs quiverful and their fourteen children may they enjoy the good things which providence has at length given to them End of chapter fifty two Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter fifty three of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter fifty three Conclusion. The end of a novel, like the end of a children's dinner party must be made up of sweetmeats and sugar-plums there is now nothing else to be told but the gala doings of mr arabin's marriage nothing more to be described than the wedding dresses no further dialogue to be recorded than that which took place between the archdeacon who married them and mr arabin and eleanor who were married wilt thou have this woman to be thy wedded wife and wilt thou have this man to be thy wedded husband to live together according to god's ordinance mr arabin and eleanor each answered i will we have no doubt that they will keep their promises the more especially as the signora neroni had left barchester before the ceremony was performed mrs bold had been somewhat more than two years a widow before she was married to her second husband and little johnny was then able with due assistance to walk on his own legs into the drawing-room to receive the salutations of the assembled guests mr harding gave away the bride the archdeacon performed the service and the two miss grantlys who were joined in their labours by other young ladies of the neighbourhood performed the duties of bridesmaids with equal diligence and grace mrs grantly superintended the breakfast and mary bold distributed the cards and cake the archdeacon's three sons had also come home for the occasion the elder was great with learning being regarded by all who knew him as a certain future double first the second however bore the palm on this occasion 
being resplendent in a new uniform the third was just entering the university and was probably the proudest of the three but the most remarkable feature in the whole occasion was the excessive liberality of the archdeacon he literally made presents to everybody as mr arabin had already moved out of the parsonage of st ewold's that scheme of elongating the dining-room was of course abandoned but he would have refurnished the whole deanery had he been allowed he sent down a magnificent piano by erard gave mr arabin a cob which any dean in the land might have been proud to bestride and made a special present to eleanor of a new pony-chair that had gained a prize in the exhibition nor did he even stay his hand here he bought a set of cameos for his wife and a sapphire bracelet for miss bold showered pearls and work-boxes on his daughters and to each of his sons he presented a cheque for twenty pounds on mr harding he bestowed a magnificent violoncello with all the new-fashioned arrangements and expensive additions which on account of these novelties that gentleman could never use with satisfaction to his audience or pleasure to himself those who knew the archdeacon well perfectly understood the causes of his extravagance twas thus that he sang his song of triumph over mr slope this was his paean his hymn of thanksgiving his loud oration he had girded himself with his sword and gone forth to the war now he was returning from the field laden with the spoils of the foe the cob and the cameos the violoncello and the pianoforte were all as it were trophies reft from the tent of his now conquered enemy the arabins after their marriage went abroad for a couple of months according to the custom in such matters now duly established and then commenced their deanery life under good auspices and nothing can be more pleasant than the present arrangement of ecclesiastical affairs in barchester the titular bishop never interfered and mrs proudie not often her sphere is more extended more noble and more suited to her ambition than that of a cathedral city as long as she can do what she pleases with the diocese she is willing to leave the dean and chapter to themselves mr slope tried his hand at subverting the old established customs of the close and from his failure she had learnt experience the burly chancellor and the meagre little prebendary are not teased by any application respecting sabbath-day schools the dean is left to his own dominions and the intercourse between mrs proudie and mrs arabin is confined to a yearly dinner given by each to the other at these dinners dr grantly will not take a part but he never fails to ask for and receive a full account of all that mrs proudie either does or says his ecclesiastical authority has been greatly shorn since the palmy days in which he reigned supreme as mayor of the palace to his father 
but nevertheless such authority as is now left to him he can enjoy without interference he can walk down the high street of barchester without feeling that those who see him are comparing his claims with those of mr slope the intercourse between plumstead and the deanery is of the most constant and familiar description since eleanor has been married to a clergyman and especially to a dignitary of the church mrs grantly has found many more points of sympathy with her sister and on a coming occasion which is much looked forward to by all parties she intends to spend a month or two at the deanery she never thought of spending a month in barchester when little johnny bold was born the two sisters do not quite agree on matters of church doctrine though their differences are of the most amicable description mrs arabin's church is two degrees higher than that of mrs grantly this may seem strange to those who will remember that eleanor was once accused of partiality to mr slope but it is no less the fact she likes her husband's silken vest she likes his adherence to the rubric she specially likes the eloquent philosophy of his sermons and she likes the red letters in her own prayer-book it must not be presumed that she has a taste for candles or that she is at all astray about the real presence but she has an inkling that way she sent a handsome subscription towards certain very heavy ecclesiastical legal expenses which have lately been incurred in bath her name of course not appearing she assumes a smile of gentle ridicule when the archbishop of canterbury is named and she has put up a memorial window in the cathedral mrs grantly who belongs to the high and dry church the high church as it was some fifty years since before tracts were written and young clergymen took upon themselves the highly meritorious duty of cleaning churches rather laughs at her sister she shrugs her shoulders and tells miss thorne that she supposes eleanor will have an oratory in the deanery before she has done but she is not on that account a whit displeased a few high church vagaries do not she thinks sit amiss on the shoulders of a young dean's wife it shows at any rate that her heart is in the subject and it shows moreover that she is removed wide as the poles asunder from that cesspool of abomination in which it was once suspected that she would wallow and grovel anathema maranatha let anything else be held as blessed so that that be well cursed welcome kneelings and bowings welcome matins and complins welcome bell-book and candle so that mr slope's dirty surplices and ceremonial sabbaths be held in due execration if it be essentially and absolutely necessary to choose between the two we are inclined to agree with mrs grantly that the bell book and candle are the lesser evil of the two let it however be understood that no such necessity is admitted in these pages dr arabin we suppose he must have become a doctor when he became a dean 
is more moderate and less outspoken on doctrinal points than his wife as indeed in his station it behoves him to be he is a studious thoughtful hard-working man he lives constantly at the deanery and preaches nearly every sunday his time is spent in sifting and editing old ecclesiastical literature and in producing the same articles new at oxford he is generally regarded as the most promising clerical ornament of the age he and his wife live together in perfect mutual confidence there is but one secret in her bosom which he has not shared he has never yet learned how mr slope had his ears boxed the stanhopes soon found that mr slope's power need no longer operate to keep them from the delight of their italian villa before eleanor's marriage they had all migrated back to the shores of como they had not been resettled long before the signora received from mrs arabin a very pretty though very short epistle in which she was informed of the fate of the writer this letter was answered by another bright charming and witty as the signora's letters always were and so ended the friendship between eleanor and the stanhopes one word of mr harding and we have done he is still precentor of barchester and still pastor of the little church of st cuthbert's in spite of what he has so often said himself he is not even yet an old man he does such duties as fall to his lot well and conscientiously and is thankful that he has never been tempted to assume others for which he might be less fitted the author now leaves him in the hands of his readers not as a hero not as a man to be admired and talked of not as a man who should be toasted at public dinners and spoken of with conventional absurdity as a perfect divine but as a good man without guile believing humbly in the religion which he has striven to teach and guided by the precepts which he has striven to learn End of chapter 53 End of Barchester Towers by Anthony Trollope Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.